1: Hey everyone, Lou Mavs here from the Music is Life podcast with a really important question. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get Music is Life off the ground, I had a lot of questions. Such as, how do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps that people like to listen? And how do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is real simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. This means that you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. Since I started my YouTube channel, I've been able to edit the audio on iMovie and then bump into Anchor and distribute it on the podcast to everybody. And I still use Anchor to record audio-only podcasts. So, if you always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm/start to join me, Lou Maz, of the Music Is Live podcast, and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm/start. I can't wait to hear your podcast looking for new threads well we've got you covered at the music is live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com whether it's t-shirts baseball tees hoodies coffee mugs travel mugs phone cases or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the music is live podcast merch store at tpublic go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e forward slash music is live podcast and get your merch today buy my stuff and thanks for your support Terranut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code LUMABBS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. Terranut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code LUMABBS at checkout. Fuel your life. Looking for some new podcasts to listen to?
2: Well, look no further than the Rat Sound Review Network. Ratsaw Review is taking over the podcast world with plenty of shows to choose from within their network of entertaining programming, including the flagship show Ratsaw Review, with Wayne Noon, Greg Noggle, and Lou Mavs, as well as occasional co-hosts Manny Mejias and James Lilquist. We also have the official Ratsaw Review spin-offs such as Album vs. Album, Screams from the Grave, where we discuss beloved yet forgotten hard rock and metal albums of the past, and the King Diamond podcast called This Broadcast Belongs to Them. We've also got Old Man Metals Music. The Right Opinion with Harrison Bergeron. Beyond Machido, a podcast dedicated to pro wrestling and MMA with James Likwis and Eric Adams. No relation to the guy from Manowar or the mayor of New York City. The Vieira Ball with Ralph Vieira. schmack a -a 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 to you too, Ralph. The Timo Toki Podcast featuring Stradivarius and Avalon founding member Timo Toki. The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry. Just the Cheese, Please, a podcast dedicated to cheesy films of the 1980s with Tara J and Adam, the Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie, and the Music is Life podcast with Lou Mavs. The Ratsaw Review Network is your go-to one-stop shop for the best podcasts out there today. Go to ratsawreview.com for more info. And to find out where you can find, follow, subscribe, and comment on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and all streaming platforms. The Ratsaw Review Network. We're taking over.
1: You're listening to the Music is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound
2: Review Network.
3: Have we got my pajamas? I don't know. I <laughs> you find <played> that one? <laughs> Roger Marks meets Karl Marx, ladies and gentlemen. What's your father Marty do? Uh, he's a freelance writer. How long's he been out of work? <laughs> and uh, what's your mom do for a living? A lawyer. A lawyer? Good night, oh, saying about the future of this place, we got to speed things up. If a guest orders a three-minute egg, give it to him in two minutes. If he orders a two-minute egg, give it to him in one minute. If he orders a one-minute egg, give him a chicken, let him work it out for himself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean-
1: music is live podcast this is your host lou maps check out everything you need to know about the show over at music is very happy to say i got my buddy and frequent co-host mr james
4: lilliquist in the house james how are you I'm great. Are you going to do the uh, dramatic gopher sound or the young Frankenstein? No, no. <laughs> I'm not going to do
1: any trolling on you in honor of our special guests that we have today. You and I are both really excited about this because we are both longtime fans of the one and only Groucho Marx. Ladies and gentlemen, I first became aware of our guests when I was doing a Google search on my favorite comedic group of all time, the Marx Brothers, to see if there were any revivals for any of their stage shows. In that search, I found out about this actor, who when I first saw him, I thought I was definitely looking at Julius Marks himself. He had been performing the role of Groucho in the play Groucho, A Life in Review, written by Groucho's son, Arthur, and depicting Groucho's life from the ages of 15 to 85. At the time, clips were available on YouTube, and I found myself taken away by his performance. Not only was he displaying the quick wit and rapid-fire humor of the subject in question, but he also showed the heart of the man offstage. When an opportunity came to see him in Freeport, New York in the spring of 2014, my family and I went over to see him transform from his real self into Groucho Marx, and it felt like the spirit of Groucho took over him. In those two hours that we spent and he gave my family a wonderful time that we'll never forget i'm proud to say that his performance of groucho will be broadcast soon on pbs stations around the country in the month of april and we are honored to have him as our guest today ladies and gentlemen please welcome the one the only mr frank ferrante
0: Thank you, Lou. I appreciate it. And hello, James. Nice to be here with you both.
4: This was one of my most enjoyable researches because not only did I get to watch Marx Brothers movies, but I also got to listen to some of your other interviews from other shows and got to hear some very interesting stories that I didn't even know about the uh, my my favorite one being the I called the Alice's restaurant semester at USC where you did the whole semester it was like an abandoned church or something like that in a basement
0: well yeah the show started uh in a in a church hall it wasn't abandoned but it was a church uh, that my family went to it's a parish that my family went to and this was a uh... As you say, it started, uh, it was a senior project at USC and the show is called An Evening with Groucho. They had a program called Directed Research, wh- which meant you can create anything you wanted to create any kind of work. But you did it in tandem with, the, with the, your mentor, with your, the professor. With, in this case, it was uh, Bill White, Professor William White. And he said, Frank, you love the Marx Brothers. You're, you're a theater major. Why don't you combine your interest? And I had just seen a show about Groucho Marx and I thought I could take that on. I thought it'd be a fun project. And so I received eight units to put this on. And so I, it was a tryout. I broke it in. it, it in my hometown of Sierra Madre at St. Rita's Church Hall. And so I had the whole community there to support me. I was selling tickets in makeup outside the church after mass. And that was the beginning. So I broke it in a church hall. And then that was summer of 84. And then spring of 85, I put it on at USC, the University of Southern California, where I was studying theater and invited Groucho's family, Groucho's son, Arthur, the playwright, Groucho's daughter, Miriam, Maury Riskins, who co-wrote Animal Crackers and A Night at the Opera, and did the screenplay for The Coconuts. They all showed up. So it all started uh, in a community fashion and, uh, and on a campus. And I have that uh, that community to thank and also um, also USC. So that was the beginning. So I was and I was discovered there. Uh, by Arthur Marx, uh, Groucho Marx's son, who was a playwright who had a play that he wanted to continue uh, touring around. And that was that was the beginning for me. And that was in 1985, if I'm correct. That's right. And he said to me, Frank, if I ever do a show about my father again, I'd like to use you. I graduated that year in May. And then within months, we were in Kansas City in a dinner theater. So my first job out of school in the fall of 85, was playing Groucho Marx from age 15 to 85 in the show that was just called Groucho at the time. And Gabe Kaplan had done a version of it years before. That was broadcast Um, in
1: 1982.
0: Yeah, I think it was on HBO. We did a version of it and we rewrote it and and, and did some nips and tucks. And it evolved over, over all the weeks in Kansas City and then in rehearsals when we went to New York. The gentleman that owned that theater in Kansas City wanted to produce in New York. So they raised about half a million dollars and here I was, 22 years old, playing my hero from age 15 to 85 in this incredible show that, as you said, has a lot of heart and humor. It's really well juxtaposed his private life and his professional life. And it really focuses on his relationship with Chico, who they're very different individuals, very contrasting. And that was really at the at the core of that piece. And that was the beginning. The show opened in 86 off Broadway, the Lucille Ortel and played for 254 performances. It was what they call the sleeper kind of hit of the year. played for just under a year. It received awards and beautiful reviews and it was mind-boggling, a very heady experience for a kid like me at the time. And that was the beginning. And it just kept snowballing from there. And it's so like I had to work my way backwards because I had to figure out well, I need to be an actor still. And it got me into other roles. It got me into directing for the theater and producing in the theater and editing theatrical work. You, you figure out a lot in terms of survival when you're in the theater. But I was kind of thrust into it early on. And then you have to figure it out, which is what I continue to try to do.
1: Since then, I can aim off some of your accolades off the top of my head. You've done Neil Simon plays, including directing one of them. You do an improv character by the name of Caesar, which is who you have behind you. The Teatro Zanzani. After New York, we went to London and I did six months in London.
0: And then I was doing other shows related to the character, because that's really all I had experience with at that age. At 23, 24, I didn't. Productions and some of the best regional theaters in the country from the, it did Animal Crackers, and did Coconuts off Broadway. But I didn't want to just do that, but it led to other, other interests. It led to other roles in, other, in the theater, including this uh, Teatro Zinzani show that you mentioned I've done for over 20 years. It's a very, where I played this Latin lover character, this the Caesar. And that's, it's very improvisational, uh, as is uh, the one man show that I currently tour with called An Evening with Groucho which is the show that Arthur saw me in at USC. So I started with An Evening with Groucho, did Arthur's play, Groucho, A Life and Review in New York and London. That was done, put on PBS 2001. And I've done, I don't know, over 3,000 performances in that role in different vehicles, different shows. And I've done probably 2,000 performances as the Caesar in Teatro Zanzani in San Francisco, Seattle, Amsterdam. I opened the venue in Chicago and have played there twice and will go back again, I think, within the year. It's a very immersive, interactive, it's a variety show, a very high-end, opulent, over-the-top variety show, uh, a high-end with acts from all over the world and Tony Award winners that uh, are featured, tumblers and acrobats and aerialists and great singers and jugglers, you name it, and I'm the host. And I do about a third, at least a third of the show. And it's, again, very interactive, as is my one-man show, An Evening with Groucho, which started as a student, which has just evolved over years. It's become much more interactive. About a third of that show is improvised. And I love that form. I like engaging in the the interactive comedy form. It's become a a real high for me and something that I continue to work on and nuance. It's joy. And then I've done other roles, like you said, and I've directed, I don't know, maybe a dozen Neil Simon plays at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, where the Marx Brothers played at Alsatia's Great Historic Theater. You played Pseudalist there. Like, Pseudos I think happened in
1: the way they form. That's all. I mean, Zero Mastel was always one of my favorite over the top grandiose actors. I mean, especially after seeing him in that and seeing him in the original version of Mel Brooks as the producers.
0: He's one of the greatest. And what's beautiful about Zero Mastel, and I try to borrow from no matter how over the top he is, you believe him. He's so anchored in his truth. His madness, his desperation, his need, and I loved playing that role. I directed that one as well in Philadelphia, which is no easy task to be to play that lead role and then to direct a twenty-something person musical, a Sondheim musical, and to sing it. There's a full orchestra, and you've got you know some of the best actors from New York and Philadelphia, character actors in that show. That also has, of course, a very vaudeville interactive. You know, it's designed. There are moments where you can play with the audience, not not a lot, but you can do certainly do takes and as I did, and and as Zero Mostel did. and uh, It's a bondo. You know, people like Carl Ballantyne were in that show, and Phil Silvers, and Jack Guilford, who I met opening night in New York when I was a kid, who played Hysterium originally. I've been really fortunate. I've met some of my heroes, like Hal Holbrook, who was and still is the king of the one-person show, the historic solo show. Uh, He he did Mark Twain tonight. There he is there.
1: There we go. Yep. Poster. Nice panning, by the way. That was very good. Thank you. Thank you. No charge for that. <laughs> I'm non union in this case. So are but, we.
0: <laughs> yeah. What do you get for not rehearsing? You couldn't <laughs> afford it. There you go. <laughs> you know, when I was studying or putting on the show, forming this one person show, I didn't know what a one person show was. I was 20 years old or so, or 19, 20 years old. And so I went around and LA County looking for every one-person show that was out there. And there was a spate of them at the time in the mid-80s that were right at my beck and call, right at my front door. There was a Dorothy Parker one-person show. The person who became my friend, Eddie Carroll, did a Jack Benny one-man show, which was fantastic. We became good friends and worked together I saw Jack Klugman play Lyndon B. Johnson in a one-person show. But it was Hal in 1984 when I was preparing for my show, who was just a granddaddy. I mean, he was just so there. It was so connected. It was the first time I went, oh, this is not an actor. This is a writer. This is Mark Twain. And I went backstage afterward to meet him. This was in Glendora at Citrus College, not too far from where I am now, about 15 minutes from where I am. He signed my poster, and it was. I got to see him up close and the makeup and prosthetics, the whole deal. That was that. And then I read his book, Harold, which I think next to Moss Hart's book, Act One, is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest showbiz book. Really a book that tells you what it's like to be in the trenches, how it all works, what it takes to put something together and continue to, to keep it going. And So I read this book, Harold, probably nine years ago or so. And I was so moved by it because it it resonated. I related to his struggles and his journey and all those venues that he played around the country like I had, and trying to make people care and believe in what you're doing and loving your subject matter and wanting the audience to love that subject matter the way you do and playing outdoors and having people, you know, di- people who are distracted, trying to get their attention. And, and, you know, the fragmented existence that he had, that I've had, being away from your loved ones like he was with his children, like I have been. I felt kindred with him and I was very moved by his story. And I said, I have to meet him. And so within a year, I uh, sent a letter to the theater that he was going to perform in, and it got to him. And I saw his performance in the front row. He was in his late 80s at the time. This was in Santa Clarita, California. And it was this 88, 89-year-old man, 88-year-old man, just on stage for 90 minutes, never sits down. I think he leaned against a table one time. And it was spectacular, his stamina. And I relate to his stamina and force. You have to have that. You have to be crazy, as he said about the two of us. There's a bit of madness and desperation. You need desperate to do this. That's why we do it, to share these characters. But I went back afterward and he said, I loved your letter, Frank. And I love what you said about the tradition of the theater. That was the beginning of our friendship, which lasted all the way up to his passing a year ago. I think today is his birthday, actually.
1: Perfect timing. Happy birthday, Hal Ho, bro. Rest in peace. Yeah. So he
0: passed away a year ago. I was at his 95th birthday. and So anyway, he comes to my show a year after I saw him the second time. I had the honor of introducing this man all these years later. Probably it was like 30 whatever years after the fact. The audience went nuts for him. And we came back and I had the same poster that he had signed in 1984. Now it's 2015. He wrote just beautiful things, like, you know, Frank, you're an original. And, and then we became friends. And I'd go over there and bring him flowers. We'd have lunch. And I'd get to hear all of his great stories of his life and work. We had a really special relationship. I was just at his house, and his assistant gave me some of, it, some, some of his photos. And, uh, not a lot, just something as a, just as an acknowledgment of our connection. But it was very moving. I have his uh, handkerchief from uh, one of his handkerchiefs from the show that she gave me that I... That I uh, Aware at times. So that's how it happened. I think you need mentors. You need people that see you and care about you to have someone say, you can do this. And one of the things, well, the most important thing I think he said to me was, uh, keep it going. It beautiful. In a letter, he wrote me, keep it going. And I knew exactly what he meant because it's so hard to keep it going. And he also said to me, it was in the midst of this pandemic. And he said, even if you do your show only once a year, you have to do it. So you can say you've done it every year consecutively. So for <laughs> me, it's been 38 consecutive years his was 62 so i'm shooting for 63
4: don't remind me that my 38th birthday is coming up here soon so oh, well, there we go <laughs>
0: we'll celebrate our anniversaries so
4: <laughs> growing up in southern california you know being in hollywood and everything like that a lot of the actors there don't want to be in theater what was your inspiration to go into theater Then going into say music or movies or television or anything like that that is predominantly what you would think of being in southern california
0: well, you know, that's another thing that Hal said. It's like, you know, you're a man of the theater. You love the theater. And Hal said, I'm a man of the theater. You're a man of the theater. That's what I've always loved. I've done it since I was a kid. I love the immediacy of it. I love being able to tell stories and the reaction, the, uh, the energy of an audience. There's nothing like it. So I never really thought about it making movies or doing television. I wanted to work on the stage. I wanted to be in shows. I wanted to be in plays. You know, I didn't know what I was going to end up doing. You know, Life keeps taking me there. And I keep saying yes to these opportunities, becoming a director. I had a teacher when I was in eighth grade who said, you'd be a great director. In eighth grade. And I ended up directing and directing a show that went on to be nominated for a sir. I'm not trying to brag I'm just uh, what I'm saying it's is, not bragging saying, it's, it's an accomplishment yeah. be, please an accomplishment. you should be That's proud of it really <laughs> it's something that came about but I think part of it has to do with people planning seats and you know with with you you know you know you, you need people around you who say you're terrific my grandma would say uh, you're gonna be like Bob Hope one you know? I, know I never became Bob Hope but I know what she meant you're gonna do things you're gonna work in your in comedy you're gonna make people laugh in your work. And it means a lot when you have people in your life that support you. And I still do. But to answer your question, James, uh, I got a taste of it in grammar school, doing sketches, you know, in class. And I it, it was like a lightning bolt, right, went right here. It was a high. It took my breath away, the experience. And I always wanted to recapture that feeling of, you know, not, you know, initially maybe acceptance, but really, being a conductor, you know, when I'm up there doing a one person show with musical accompaniment, it's an odd thing. I've been looking at the um, the, the film is coming out of the show in, in April. We filmed it um, a couple of years back and now it's rolling out on PBS. And so, I've been you know, I've been around it. It's been you know, around the editing of it, the sound, the uh, you know, the DVD, the doing the bonus feature. I mean, there's I've just been immersed in the last days and weeks with the show more than usual. Uh, because um it's coming it's coming to fruition the film version and i look at it going, like, my gosh the force it takes to stand up there and work a crowd. It's like what the hell was i thinking what am i doing why would anyone do this it's you know even i was having that moment of like this is insanity but worth it you know and worth it because you know i've been working for you know i've i've played over 500 cities i always say this over 500 cities 3000 performances countries you know continents and the experience of meeting people, of trying to entertain people and in different cultures, different parts of the country, whether it's the South, whether it's New York or Paducah or San Francisco or Altoona. Or... I did 50 towns in Australia with the Groucho character. I played the Caesar character in Amsterdam. Now, English is a second language, but still not an easy feat. But I, I was able to pull that off. But I guess my point is it's a, it's a joyful, mostly a joyful experience to meet you know the cab drivers now, the lift drivers, the people that work at hotels, restaurants, bars, back people backstage at the theater, front of the theater, front of house, and I've got to meet so many interesting people, kind people, and I I'm able to engage with people who tell me their life story. They tell me, you know, you sit there in a cab and you just have a conversation, and then you feel connected to humanity. And sometimes those people become family surrogates because I needed that. I needed to feel that I was connected to to humanity when I was on the road for sometimes weeks and months at a time. Sometimes there were just lots and lots of uh, a great deal of one-nighters, which is you know wild. You, you show up the day before, you check into the hotel, you get up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee or breakfast, you check the show for a few hours, you do the performance at night, you do a meet and greet, you go have a, a snack and or drink, and then the next day you're gone and go to the next town and a lot of my life was like that for you know, 20 plus years. So when I get to do a sit down, uh, like with Teatro Zanzani, a six month run, or do a New York run like I did with Braucho Life and Review or the Coconuts, that's also satisfying because you have consistency, you're structured to your life. You can make friends, you can have a world, you can have um, rituals. You can have those for the one nighters too, but it's less adrenalized. And I've spent most of my existence adrenalized. I can't make a mistake. I've never, knocked wood, never missed a show. I've never been late. Thousands of performances. I, I take it very seriously, of course, and, uh, as, as we do in the theater. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to keep it going. And there's been ups and downs. But uh, there's been enough variety for me. The Groucho role has been a, th- uh, a through line. And it's fun to return to it. The director is Webber, Weber, who directed the film and the stage version. The last 10 years she's done it. And she's upgraded the piece along the way and given it more brains and more uh, substance. She asked me a great question. What do you want to share about Groucho? What makes him who he is? Tell me more about him. And she wanted to know about his intellect and his relationship with writers and writing and the fact that he never made it past the sixth grade, that in a relationship, a correspondence with T.S. Eliot that he was so proud of, this kid that never made it past sixth grade, this came from a, a poor family that made it on his own. All of them did. Now, I talk about that. I talk about the fact that, yes, it's a challenge to be on the road, but they really were challenged. They had no net. They were teenagers. They were poor. And it was life or death. There was no credit, no credit cards. No one's going to bail you out.
3: We bail you out. And let that be a lesson
0: to every one of you. That kind of stress actually makes a difference. I've been there. I know what it's like to think, I've got to kill this. I've got to nail it. It always leads to more. I've done tiny little jobs, a $5 job I once did in 1990 or 91, maybe 91, playing a 70-year-old German director. I was like a kid. I was in my 20s who has a heart attack and dies in the middle of a scene. It was like a three-minute scene or so. But someone saw me who remembered me from New York a few years prior, and that led to me directing Groucho Life and Review in Bellport, Long Island, the Gateway Playhouse. And then that led to Bernard Havard seeing me, who's from the Walnut Street Theater. I've worked there for almost 30 years. I've done probably 20 pieces there. Original work, Simon revivals, Groucho, musicals, farces, all that came from that $5 show. Milton Burrow, the first great... TV comedian at the fires club he said frank do everything and i said well, i thought well, that's not very discerning and i thought wait a minute i get what he means say yes say yes as much as you can and it's a good idea to say yes because those yeses usually add up to something but i've got a lot of stories like that where it's like why did i do this i did a a fundraiser benefit for a, a corral in uh, woodland hills doing the groucho show and you know i was moving the 10 foot grand you know half an hour before the show i just was like someone help me here and i was angry and i used that anger within the performance this is like in 2001 20 years ago the corral opened and they did about 15 minutes prior to my 90 minute show So it's hard to follow 20 minutes of chorale music, you know, all these immense chorale. I start in the audience. I start as myself and I enter as Frank and I become Groucho. And I was sitting in this particular audience fuming at the time. And by the time I got up there, I had a lot of angst. You know, I was raring to go. I was ready to roar. And I killed it. It was like 400 people. It was a sold out house. And it was just had more of an edge than ever. And in the audience was a friend of the producer, of Teatro Zinzani. His name was Stuart Gordon. People can look him up. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Reanimator. <laughs> the Stuart Gordon? The Stuart Gordon. Reanimator is one of my favorite horror films ever. That's Stu. He just passed away a year ago or so. Great man. He called his friend, Norman Langel, who had this new Cirque show, Dinner Theater in San Francisco and Seattle. It was a high-end, classy operation. It was a very elegant setting in a tent, in a Belgium Spiegel tent called a... Well, that's what it's called. It's a Spiegel tent. And uh, hand-carved wood, stained glass. You know, it was a beautiful, velvety burgundy material uh, fabric, and it was incredible. That low-paying little benefit that I did that made me so angry led to. I'm still doing it. 22 years later, 21 years later, and I made a very good living. If I just did that in my life, that would have been enough. That would have been enough. And I continued to do it. And I played this character, that character right there who is kind of forever middle-aged. It's just on the ebb of his career. You know, he's just a, he's a puncher and uh, he thinks he's all that. And the audience loves him, thankfully, for the most part. But that led to 20 plus years of employment. You know, who knows what's going to change your life? What person you meet, what conversation you have next to someone on an airplane. You know, I always start thinking about that. My tendency for many years was just to like, you know, to prop up against the window and sleep because that's, sometimes that's the only sleep you get when you travel is on the plane. But I try now to really engage more in conversation when I can because you learn about people and you don't know what opportunities you know, will, will come up. And I don't mean that in a kind of a selfish way. I mean, just think about human interaction, you know, joy. You, you know, you, you meet people that, that need to have a conversation, that need to have a friend on that plane at that moment. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing when that happens.
1: You mentioned before Groucho, A Life in Review was first broadcast on PBS back in 2001. And we're now in 2022 with the new Evening with Groucho about to air on PBS in April. Why the 21-year wait?
0: Well, you know, I had this great opportunity, Lou, in that a few years back, I was at the Cincinnati Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. It's a two-time Tony Award-winning theater. A uh, great place, great actors and, and work has come through that playhouse. And they booked me for seven weeks, which is unusual sometimes they get a, a longer run. I'm used to one-nighters. But in this case, they wanted me there for part of their season. And the set design, which I don't know if you've seen photos of it online, it was absolutely it's stunning. It's a Broadway set. And I was there with the director, Drea Weber, and we, we thought we should this should be filmed. If we're going to film it anywhere, and normally I would just do it with a few furniture pieces, as you saw, lighting. I can play any kind of venue. I can play a 2,000-seat state-of-the-art theater. I can, play a, I can be at a grammar school stage. I could be at an opera house. I could be at a, you know, at a, at a university setting. It doesn't matter. I can be in the round. I could be in the extreme thrust scenario. But we had this beautiful set, and we figured we should, we should take advantage of this. And so Drea set up a three-camera shoot. And she shot it over, we, over three or four performances. And she had a handheld camera, which was essential in a way. So she could be right on my shoulder going into the audience. You know, Groucho is fluid. The, the way I play him is very fluid. He's fluid mentally, he's fluid physically. And um, she was able to capture that kind of that fluidity, that interaction with an audience, the improv. And um, so she filmed it. And there was, you know, three camera angles, four performances. That's a lot of film. One of the camera people didn't turn their camera on at some point. So we, did, we couldn't match up some of it uh, on a crucial day of performance. Uh, but that being said, uh, it ended up sitting around for two, three years. And during the pandemic, we had nothing going on. I'm a stage performer and all my peers were wiped out. Some of them i still haven't worked over two years. It changed everything, all of us, sitting around. There's no way to make money. People get collecting unemployment. People are going through the Actors Fund to get, you know, some kind of support with their insurance, medical insurance. It's brutal, still brutal. And we're not out of the woods, a lot of us. But um, we had this opportunity, Lou, to edit this piece. And that's what Drea did over months, meticulously. And so she sculpted this incredible, I think it's an amazing transfer of a, of a of a live show to film and it's not easy to communicate a live show on film sometimes a very flat very very presentational proscenium setup but because she was able to go on the stage and the, the stage was thrust so far out she could be behind me she could capture different angles that she would not have been able to capture in a more traditional setup and to their credit the Cincinnati Playhouse said do it and most theaters will not say do it and um they let us do it. And so she did it. Dre edited this thing during the pandemic. I was over her shoulder for some of mostly the sound because the audience isn't mic'd, but I know the laughs so well after so many years and so many hundreds of performances. I know the you know that's music. Small laugh, big laugh, bigger laugh, resolved laugh, a couple chuckles here. I know exactly where they're gonna fall. And so I'm able to say, you know, I think we need to maybe help this laugh out here, enhance this. So that you had a real sense of of the music, of the the laughter of, of the piece, which is essential. Now, I was so happy that it's now preserved. I have this thing archived, and that audiences that can't afford it or haven't seen it can now see it on PBS. So it's rolling out uh, this spring in April 1st, and April first, and it'll be. It's a four-year deal, so a lot of uh, PBS stations will show it in April, May, and then they'll have the ch- other stations will have the choice to put it on whenever they want. So that's how it came about out of necessity. And really my desire not to let it die. It's really a strange thing to do a show every night. And then it, it's up in the air. It's in the ethers. It's gone forever. Not like a movie. There's no royalty. There's no residual. It's just, that's it. And you can't show anyone. You just have that, as the director would say, Dre would say, you have the, we have this contract with the audience. This is it. This is it. This is us. It's live. It's just, you know, just... Just this, just us in this room, and w- this is our experience, and it's a pretty kind of a sacred thing bond. It's an odd thing. It's really and having, you know, been in this pandemic, we also see how important it is for us to be together. That we need that energy. We need to be a tribe together. We need to be around the fire, to see each other. You know, in Teatro Zanzani, it's literally in the round, six foot diameter. All this madness. You know, people are hanging above your head. There's you know juggling pins going around. I'm I am on. I'm dancing on tables, and I'm doing, you know, donkey kicks on tables, and it's it's extremely immersive. But that is like we're all together. This has been going on since the beginning of time. People in the middle telling the story, and the community taking it in. Well, that's what we've missed for two years. Children, young people, you know, I've have kind of learned that it's not maybe not important to go to live theater, to go to a ballet or symphony or a comedy, a concert or comedy show, and. And that's a strange thing that they don't know from, you know, hopefully that's going to change again. And people will always want to see live entertainment and see, want to see plays and musicals and so forth. But that's also the beauty of it is I got to preserve this show because it is, it's in the air afterward.
4: I always loved my band director for the one thing of him when on our senior play, uh, he went to Chicago and saw the Blue Man Group live. Mm -hmm. And it's a much, very similar to your show where it's just, it's madness and everything's going around, audience participation, things yeah. are flying everywhere. And that is going to be one of those you know memories that are etched in my mind. So you say, so you say it goes out in the ether. I disagree only because the audience will always remember that. Well, that's and I, it. They always think about it because for me, growing up in East Tennessee, after moving from California, which was a heck of a culture shock um out here it's a lot more live performances you know we got the dinner shows of Pitch and Forge and all that stuff right sure a lot of people a lot of people look down on that saying oh no that's not a thing." I'm like no these people are you know performing for 300 400 people a night three times a night right and stuff like that and you get to have that chance to build on those audiences you get to make those memories Dollywood always makes this thing called memories worth repeating you want to keep going to these things
0: well you Uh, have an excellent point and uh, is that, that's what we, it is a shared moment. And it is a memory that's just, um, that is shared amongst those 50 people or 2000 people. And there's a lot to be said for it. That is the point. But there comes, there came a time for me for, with this particular show that I figure, I don't know, how long can I do it? Well, I hope until I'm ninety, 92, like Hal. And uh, it was, it became important for me to preserve. And, um, but I, at your point, so well. And that it's that's I think that's the magic of it. The fact that we're crazy enough to want to do this, you know, for just a few, and it has meaning and it resonates. It's a beautiful
4: thing. Worst case scenario, you can always go back to doing the uh, old Groucho bits of just being up there and having <laughs> somebody feed you, you know, feed you punch lines. I remember that story. I think someone asked, and
1: this is after Chico and Harpa passed away. They said, are you ever going to bring back the Marx Brothers? And he said, no, I'm up here answering stupid questions. <laughs> well, yeah, I, well, I
0: was there for that. You know, I was I was 13 years old. And my dad took me to see Groucho live in person in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel. And, um, you know, I witnessed that. And I love telling that story. It's like, Groucho, are you making any new Marx Brothers movies was the question. And he took this long pause and he goes, no. I'm answering stupid questions. And the audience, <laughs> the audience, audience died and exploded. And most of that audience was, you know, under 25. It was college age, young people. It was incredible, 1976, September. And my dad took the day off of work to take me to see my hero. But, yeah, he had, you know, a woman asked him, Groucho, what do you dream about? He looked at her and said, not you. It was, be- you know, it was, you know it was sl- the mechanism had slowed, but he still was getting through with this humor and um, he was amazing, you know, and still, still reading. I'm always amazed by him. You know, he, he, could, he could barely stroke written. He could barely speak. He could barely move, but he spoke to the, there was a, a host there and, and Groucho whispered to him and said, said something. And the host said, Groucho wants you to know that he, you should all read scoundrel time by Lillian Hellman. He just finished reading it, which is about Nixon. Uh, who he despised, and uh, someone asked him, no, I asked him, I said, uh, what do you, because I, I knew how he felt about him, it was one of the first questions, I said, show, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about Nixon? Goes, I hate Nixon, Nixon ought to be in jail, and of course, everyone's, this is right there in 76, that young audience exploded with joy, and, uh, but in my uh, 13-year-old brain, I thought, how do you, how do I rile up the old guy, and get his, um, isn't that funny, that was my uh, thinking, how do I get them all? You know, like I was before that benefit performance. You know, that kind of anger. He's yes, he has, he has that edge that has served him his whole life. His indignation and his, um, his anger is a great part of his humor, and a lot of comedians actually. He
1: Pretty had cool. quick wit. I mean. He definitely had quick wit, and he was never dirty. And I remember there was an old quote of Groucho's where he said. You know, it's easy to be dirty to try to get a laugh. It's a lot harder to be funny and not be dirty. And I can't think of that many comedians that have come in his wake that really kind of followed suit. And that's crazy for me to say, because I know that one of his closest friends before he passed was Alice Cooper, the rock star. Him and Alice were great friends and when people think alice cooper that you know they think welcome to my nightmare james and i actually just reviewed the television special for welcome to my nightmare i told him i said i wonder if he actually took influence from some of the mgm marx brothers films because of a lot of the choreography and, and the way the musical numbers were portrayed to me i would think cooper probably borrowed from in my opinion the masters of musical comedy because those two first films they did for MGM, Not at the opera and Day at the Races, you can't name me two funnier comedies with music in them. So I'm thinking he had Agreed. to have been influenced by them and they were that close.
0: Groucho and George Burns went to see Alice Cooper live. I think Burns was the one who turned to Groucho and said, vaudeville, he's doing vaudeville. Mm-hmm. It it's the theatrics. See, basically everything's been done and they'd already done it and seen it all. Uh, Groucho and Benny and Burns. So when they saw someone like, Cooper they appreciated his you know his theatrical style and and, you know these are people that have been on the same bill with Harry Houdini and John Philip Sousa people like that you know all kinds of madness and you know extreme types of of personalities and and acts so you know Alice Cooper some good some bad (laughs) yeah yeah like Swain's rat Swain's rats and cats you hear about that one Where, where the rats actually the rats are the jockeys and the cats are the horses that was an act in Vaudeville, Swain's Rats and Cats, and uh, it was a it was a rat and cat act. You know, there's a whole story there,
1: but I don't want to know how it ended. <laughs> <laughs>
4: but I always appreciate those type of com- uh, comedians that took a lot from Groucho, you know, the quick, rapid fire punch lines. You know, like I always think like Carl Reiner, or you know, those type of guys that were, you know, out there just blasting jokes. We went after Ronnie Dangerfield just coming out there you know, you've got 15 minutes, you better make it the best you got. Cause you know, that's, right. And it's, that's very vaudeville because you've got only that certain amount of time. You better go out there and do it, or you might not do it again.
0: Right. And you know, Henny Youngman, Rodney Dangerfield, you know, different, you know, different styles, but that one liner, bang, 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 you know, two of them are masterful. Rodney to me, is like one of the best about the, the best in the form. I love Rodney. Agreed. And he had a persona to go along with it. Um, the no respect man is such a, what a great thing act, you know, so you can get away with a lot when you have this kind of self contempt and you're the, you're the underdog. It's great. That's great. I, I like to go down the uh, the YouTube rabbit hole and, and watch Rodney and Joan Rivers is one of my favorite. I love Joan Rivers. She's in that same vein with that certain terms of the attack that she has. I love her so much. And, you know, I love Jeffrey Ross. There's so many great. You know, there's so many funny people around now and, and who loved Groucho and are influenced by Groucho. And they're, you know he's in he's in all their DNA and certainly in mine now. I and mean, we've all adopted we grew up loving him, a lot of us in
1: our 40s, 50s and up. I can and- attest though, having seen you perform, the way you transformed into Groucho, we forgot we were watching Frank Ferrante. Like you became so into the character. The beautiful thing about your performance was that. You had people of all ages. You had kids there as young as five. I was 33 when I saw you. You had people my age and younger. You had senior citizens there. And it's like, for, for one night, it, we got to see Groucho come to life. You captured everything so perfectly. The look, the mannerisms,
3: the duck walk. Well, what are we wasting time for? Hey baby, let's go to bed. <laughs> walk
1: <laughs> <laughs> the way you would put your cigar in your mouth for comedic effect and of course the quick wit you know i remember telling everybody at work that monday i said listen i know you're all gonna make fun of me you don't care about the marx brothers but i don't care you gotta see this guy in performance one day you'll never see anything funnier and you could bring your whole family thank you um,
0: i appreciate that a lot it means a lot to me because i've always felt that and i still feel i still feel that the show needs to work whether people know who groucho marx is or not and less and less know him if i'm playing seven weeks in cincinnati or 10 weeks in milwaukee which i've done that's a that's a people that are subscribing to a series of shows i'm one of those shows so they're not there because they Are Groucho fans? They're there because they're theater fans. They're there because they want to go out and have a good time and have a bite to eat and get a drink and see a show. I have to make it work whether they know him or not. And as time goes by, you know, no one, you know, I have to give context to their famous foil, Margaret Dumont. So they don't think that I'm picking on, you know, just a, a female friend of his. They have to know that she embodies high society and wealth and privilege and the upper class. They don't know that. It's just, you know, and he's the outsider. He's the little guy pouting away. But who knows who Margaret DeMont is in that audience? You know, who knows who Broucher was? Some, sometimes, you know, if I do shorter runs and if I do, like I was to play at the Pasadena Playhouse, I had sold out 700 seats for three or four shows packed, and it's like a rock concert. I'll go to Philadelphia next month. It'll be packed. It depends. There's, it's all cyclical. People become aware of him because of books and shows like mine and the movies, certainly, first and foremost on, you know, you see him on TCM, you can go on YouTube. There's a lot of discovery that's going on. I was in Seattle for three summers, 2012, 13, 14. It was great. And there was a young crowd showing up. They didn't, you know, I don't know if they'd ever seen him before or read about him and knew that he had a subversive style. But there was I cannot believe that I'd live long enough to see this type of resurgence, this kind of interest from young people. And I'd be out there, with would be young people on dates in their 20s. I kept thinking, was there some kind of discount given? All I knew is they were having a great time, and they were young. And it's the first time I'd seen so many young people in attendance at, at any show, because mostly the theater crowd is a 50 and up crowd traditionally, always. It mean, has been for decades. People can afford to go, people who have been weaned on it uh, and have, you know, learned from their own families. That's, this is a good thing to do. Let's go see a show. It's a, it's a privilege. It's a joy. Let's go see Music Man
1: or whatever. I think for me, what really hits home, why I love the Marx Brothers so much, I mean, I was about four or five years old when I first saw Duck Soup. But believe it or not, my favorite Marx Brothers film, James, I don't know if you know this or not, is Monkey Business. As crazy as it is, because that (laughs) film is so zany, off the wall, anarchic, I can't stop laughing. Especially the scenes with Harpo, you know, when he's doing the Punch and Judy puppet show, and when the gentleman has a sore throat and... (laughs) He's telling the uh, barber, I got a frog in my throat and Harpo really thinks he swallowed the frog and he's turning him over. But for me, why it's historically significant is because Coconuts and Animal Crackers were both shot in Astoria, Queens. I'm from Astoria, Queens, originally born and bred. The fact that they shot both those films in what is now known as Kaufman Astoria Studios. Uh in long island city it's new york history but i also feel like it's kind of my history and it's why i kind of felt this kinship Uh with them having to say that i've seen all the films and you know and and i'm still always searching for new content about groucho just because i just felt like he was like one of the more compelling figures of that bygone era and growing up you were able to watch his films on networks like Fox or WWOR. Then yeah, it got moved to PBS in the 90s. And now the only place you can find them is on TCM unless you purchase the physical media from them mm-hmm. on like Amazon or wherever you can find it. It's beautiful that you're keeping it alive because I, I would never want this th- that era of comedy and film to go away, you know? And that's the thing I'm always afraid of because the main way people get their content now is by streaming. And unfortunately, streaming only leaves room for, you know, dare I say it, you know, like Marvel Cinematic Universe type things. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, I mean, it just doesn't leave room for some of the classic films. You know, the the Marx Brothers films, the Abbott and Costello films, the Thin Man film series, you know, like and people say, oh, black and white is boring. Well, no, no, it's pay attention to the story, watch the acting and realize you're seeing history right there. And if you, if you let go of it, people will forget about it. It'll never come back. You doing it is great for all of us that remember when we were younger, but didn't get to see it as it was going on. Yeah. Well, thank you.
0: I, I appreciate what you're saying, Lou, very much. And I have to say, uh, in a way, I'm lucky because I was one of the younger ones that was a, around when he was still alive. I was, you know, I was one of those kids that saw his renaissance in the early 70s. I was 9, 10, 11. And so, you know, any younger, no one has a memory of Braucho on the planet. I'm one of the last people. Now I'm in my late 50s. You look great. I, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, I've got to deal with the devil. <laughs> Stop that. Silly. You know what it is? I get to do what I love to do. I've, I always feel like, and I feel like a kid. When you do what you want to do, no matter what profession it is, it, you know, it, it affects, I think, everything. The way you look, the way you move, the way you think. And uh, I've always loved what I've done. So, and I've always been grateful uh, that I got to do it. But, you know, back to like perpetuating it, which was another reason I'm so happy it's going to be airs, it'll be first on PBS, then it'll be streamed elsewhere. And it'll be fun. The DVD has a fun bonus feature with it about 23 minute, uh, interview with with uh, yours truly and the director drea Weber, and so some good insight on on the making of that Robert bader he's probably the number one person in terms of keeping the Marxes going. He did the dVD collection on you Bet your life he's got a documentary coming out on uh, Cabot and groucho uh he's written he wrote he did the the the, the book on groucho's uh articles and news you know all of his magazine pieces and newspaper pieces so he has a lot to do with so and he's just a couple years older than I am. But I will say there's a there. So when he passed away, I was 14. I cried. Now, if you talk to anyone around my age, or four, you know, from 10 to like 15, 16, a lot of us cried. Bader cried. This opera singer, a friend of mine, it was 10 when he passed. He cried. You know, that's the kind of. It sounds corny, but that's the kind of impact. You love him the way I love him. He gets into you. He becomes alter ego. He becomes armor. He lets you see the world differently. He gives us a lot. He's fearless. He plays by his own rules. It's all the things you want when you're a kid and a human. And that character seemed to have figured it out in those movies. He's fascinating is the concoction. It's a complex character that he's come up with. Actually, he could be light and fey and he could be dour and deadpan. And he could be falsetto to bass. You know, he had a great, he had so many tools as a range, yeah. As a performer, physically, vocally. And he was well-read. You know, he cared about uh, reading. He cared about his intellect. He loved words. And uh, as you know, loved writers. It's evident in his work. Someone gave me all of his radio shows, uh, When You Pick Your Life, and I had a long drive and I listened to a ton of them. It was like listening to someone today. You oh my God, he's that, he feels that current and that fluid. He's just as relevant. He's just as fresh now because of his big brain. And he was doing that material seventy years ago. Incredible.
1: You're right, though. He he's what we wish we could say to the elitist snobs.
0: His son Arthur told me, and I read that too, that he uh, kept a you know, he kept a dictionary in his glove compartment. I have his encyclopedia here. I have one of his dictionaries from the early '70s. He loved language. For a lot of us, being introduced to Groucho meant being introduced to comedy writing, the performing arts, different lands, New York City for us who grew up in small towns. And, Uh, That was a thrill, reading Harpo Speaks. That's one of the great books. Uh, And reading about growing up in in New York City, turn of the last century. It becomes a gateway to so many other enjoyable pastimes and and obsessions, let's be honest. And that's really Groucho. And reading, you know, I I read because of my interest in, in Groucho. I wanted to see, I wanted to learn about other comedians because of Groucho. One of the first books I read was by Steve Allen, written in the 1950s, called The Funny Men. And it was great to see like short chapters, very digestible for a kid like I, you know, like for a young kid. And you read about you know Groucho and Benny and
4: folks of that ilk. I was introduced to the Marx Brothers because I was into sports and everything. And my stepfather at the time, who just passed last year from cancer, he always wanted me to read. He was always a reader. My mom was always a reader. And I just was, I just could not sit down long enough to, to read. And he's like, here, we're gonna watch this movie. And it was bull feathers.
1: Correction, he meant horse feathers.
4: And then immediately after that, he gave me Hunter S. Thompson's Better Than Sex because it was a little bit more easier digestible than that, which can explain a lot about me, that um, I that my brain goes that way, that I can digest and understand Hunter S. Thompson, that... Um, <laughs> That got me into reading and that got me into thought and everything that Mm -hmm. I moved towards, which was more tech and being in the military and all that stuff, learning how to get people motivated, how to challenge somebody properly and how to get them to move to the peak. That's a really interesting thing that you said about that Marx is like kind of uh, the way to facilitate other mediums.
0: Absolutely. I, uh, I had my own library. I kept my own library. I had my own Dewey Decimal System and I would make up my own cards Because I loved my books so much, and they were all there, and I loved reading Vonnegut and um, I remember Woody Allen without feathers. All that was uh, thrilling. The way Bradbury. Then you you know you go there and Rod Serling, and it's wonderful. You know it all. It's uh, has a domino effect. You know he was a great artist, uh, Groucho, and that's what great artists do. They they inspire. I think he's an original. Not many people can make that claim, and he's but he's one who who can. It's great. It's uh, it's useful to study. People like that, and then find your own, make it your own. greatest compliment I ever got was uh Frank, you've got one foot in yesterday and one foot in today, and you make it all your own and that made me feel great because that's what I'm trying to do. It's not my desire to just imitate I'm not, i don't even think I'm an imitator by nature you know I, the the show I do really is I think more of a a filtering and a, uh, it's my own fantasy of what it would have been like to experience in life with the hindsight of his eighty six years. Plus of, of life, so I'm doing a Groucho from You Bet Your Life. I'm doing Groucho from Coconuts. I'm doing Groucho from Day at the Races. In all of these, you know, it's a different different slices of Groucho at the circus. It's all there, and so it becomes a little hodgepodge. And hopefully, it's a satisfies becomes a satisfying evening for an audience. Groucho never had a one man show, except for the, when at the very end of his life, when he basically read cards at Carnegie Hall, and when he was 81 years old, 82. But he never stood alone on stage for 90 minutes. He was very dry, very dry, and never worked without his brothers you know, on stage, except for when he did you know, a few things, Time for Elizabeth. They, he did other things, but I'm talking in his heyday. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what it'd been like for him to work a crowd. I had to have a congenial streak in a way to bring in the audience. I can't, you know, I, that is something I have to have or no one's going to be there, in my opinion. He had a charisma. He had a charm. But he also, you know, I also do also, I'm out there, I'm brash, I insult people, I do all that. Sometimes, you know, you're always walking that line. And I'm always with with both characters, with the Caesar character with Groucho. And I've gone both ways. Sometimes I go, I should have leaned in harder, or I should have backed off there, that was too much. You can't make you know, everyone happy all the time.
1: There are some people that do deserve it because I, I did see you call out a couple of people that were looking at their cell phones while you're performing. And I thought that was incredibly disrespectful uh, to you. I mean, come on.
0: It's a new age, you know, I'm trying to figure it out too. How much, you know, because then it all becomes, I've done that. And it's like, you know, sometimes that's bombed. It's like, I, I, I've also taken people's phones and talked to them and, you know, I got on the phone and say, yeah, you know, you're, I'm, I, is this, you know, I'm here with your husband, you know, something, you know, and uh, he's got a beautiful girlfriend here or something like, you know, something like that. Something <laughs> audience love. And I'll have a whole I'll have like a three minute conversation on the phone with it. I'll put it on speakerphone and it becomes part of the act. And uh, I'm not the first to do that. But um, you try to find out ways to address today's audience, the, the, you know, the time we're in. Uh, you also learn when to let it go. I remember once there was a young girl just like on her phone and I went too far, I thought, because for all I know, she was Snapchatting. It's a different training today. These are the lessons you learn. Keep your eye on the prize, which is keep the show going. But sometimes you got to call people out if someone walks in or late. And you know, I never stopped looking for opportunities to dig in you know, and shake up the evening. That's what he would have done. That's what he did in life. He had he was that kind of personality. You know, he, could, he can prick at you and and uh, he, he did not suffer fools gladly, uh, his own, in his own family. Uh, and I was friends with uh, his son Arthur and his daughter Miriam. And you know, you see the, you see the product of that kind of upbringing, which is a lot of positive. And you can also see some of the, uh, see what they were grappling with, because he was such a powerful, overwhelming figure in at home and of course in the world. They shared a lot with me. I have such um, empathy for him and compassion as I get older. I read. I have a. I read all those letters he wrote to his daughter. I have those letters, the two hundred something letters, and they're so nuanced. They're so beautiful. He loved her. You get. You see a whole other side of Groucho. The letters he wrote, you know, the Groucho letters show his wit and his turn of phrase and his silliness and mock indignation. He's great, but he's a complex figure that we will never. How do you really get to know anyone, really? And and uh, people try. Biographers try to to give you the essence of someone. Everyone has secrets. Everyone has moments that have never been exposed. Groucho did. We all do. And um, that's life. People are complicated. And particularly someone like that. He's a complicated figure that dealt with a lot of, you know, I think um, self-esteem issues early on and jealousy. But he was also a great friend to a lot of young talent. He was a great proponent of so many people, from Jack Lemmon to... Woody Allen's, the Dick Cabots, you name it. There's a whole list of them. And he was a loyal friend, kept friendships for decades. He loved his kids, and in his wife Ruth was was an alcoholic, so he ended up doing a lot of parenting and shopping at times. Both of them, I was watching interviews with them lately, and they've told me they loved it. They will say, "Well, yeah, I love my father. I love my father." I think as I got older, there was conflict as they all had their own issues, whether it was a career or personal. You know, it gets more. Complicated. He loved his kids. He loved going on vacations with his kids. He liked being with them. He loved them around. He was a homebody. He wanted to stay home, smoke a pipe, listen to Gilbert and Sullivan or classical music uh, and uh, garden. He had trees, you know, and um, he uh, was, a, you know, was, had multiple subscriptions to magazines. He was well informed, well read, tapped in. He loved sports, baseball, particularly. He knew what was going on in the world. He knew, he knew what was going on in terms of topical events, current events. Uh, He had a lot on the ball.
1: I know that there was a musical adaptation of the Marx Brothers, all five of them, when they were kids, called Minnie's Boys. I know that it didn't last long and it wasn't well received, but you could see that Minnie was a hard-driving stage mom towards the Marxes. I think that Groucho may have mentioned many times how hard their mother was on them, but he knew it was out of love to help their situation, to get them out of poverty. And one of the biggest reasons why he was so cold was because when the stock market crashed, he said that's technically, if you count inflation, the richest that he ever was. And even with everything that he made from the films, from the You Bet Your Life, it still doesn't equate to what he was making before. He was always worried about money. He was always worried about security and things like that. And
2: it's pointed on in Groucho Life and Review. Lenny, I told you, I'm in no mood. Hey, Julie. I know you've been gambling in the stock market. I
3: thought you might need a loan. Yeah, I do. I need a loan very badly.
2: 50 grand.
3: You're giving all this
2: to me? Sure. You're my friend. I like you. (laughs) Besides, I never gamble in the stock market. I only believe in safe investments. Where'd you get
3: this kind of money? I shot craps last night with Al Capone. Why didn't I think of a safe investment like that? Incidentally, Chico's not fooling. He really knows all those characters. Oh, the night Bugsy Siegel was shot, they found Chico's check in his wallet. Lucky thing they shot Bugsy. Chico's check would have bounced and Bugsy would have shot Chico. <laughs> Any. Anyway, then. I really don't know what to say. You need more? Well, I could always use more. I'll flip you. Double or nothing, come on. Get out
4: of here.
3: Hey, boss. What's it a shape of the world? It's better with a brother like you.
0: he gradually lost a quarter million dollars in 1929 so you could figure out what that was what that would be today but there was a lot there he once said of he once said of his mother my mother treated all of us boys equally with contempt you know and who knows and she used to refer to him as the jealous one she made it clear that she, he was not the favorite and he, he felt that was, you know and um, yeah, that's the that's the take on, on his psychology in terms of his relationship with self with, with, with women so but uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, I don't know if Chico ever gave Groucho a dime, by the way, that may be apocryphal, but it makes for good theater. It does. <laughs> it makes for good theater.
4: Well, one of our best lines for the show is don't let the facts get in the way of a good story.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, <laughs> and, and that's exactly what I think we you know. Arthur and Robert Fisher came up with Arthur Marks when they wrote that. It, you know, it's really about that's a brother's story. Uh, but Chico did plenty to. To buoy their careers, he did you know in other ways, you know, he was the fighter, he was the hustler, he was the one that got him into certain spots that benefited the careers. He also caused them a great deal of strife. He once left in the middle of a tour, well, I think I think it was Alsatia's in the twenties, he just took off, just disappeared middle of, it's like a Broadway, think of a Broadway show touring, and one of the lead stars just disappears, and no one knows where he is Come on, is he dead? What's going to happen? I mean, so there was a lot of, and they, they, they supported him up until the end. As we all know, Chico needed the
4: money. So there you have it. The voicemails of Miriam, those sounded interesting and not only showed her side, especially after her, her father passed that almost the, like, I almost call her like the rose of it. She was, you know. She got to show her side, which was much softer, and everything that you would not expect from a daughter of Groucho, and just how talented she was.
0: I was very close to Mary. I was her trustee as she got older, and I helped her toward the end of her life. I was the caretaker in a way. And she had a hard life, but she uh, she was you know she drank from the time she was a kid. She sobered up at 50. The year her father died in 1977, you know, she didn't really get to have much of a life up to that point. You know, she was drinking all the time. She was obsessed with her father by her own admission and she was in love with her dad. She was dealing with her sexuality on top of this all, which she talks about publicly. But she had saved these beautiful letters that he wrote her. You can see his pain in dealing with her decline. You know, I don't think he ever really got to see her recovery. And maybe it was his death that maybe took her to that next step and she, she never took another drink and she lived another 40 years after that she lived to be 90 i mean it's incredible although she was she told me she doesn't remember an entire the entire decade of the 1960s but in a way bill marks her cousin harpo's son referred to her as a hero she had to learn how to drive again make coffee again read again socialize again and we had a lot of fun together you know she spent holidays with me and she'd visit me out of town she'd go you know she'd see me in show she stayed with me in my apartment when i lived in Hollywood, and uh, she knew my grandmother and my parents and, and my uncles and aunts, they all loved her, and uh, I'm digressing a bit, but she was a strong person. For someone to recover, it's a miracle. She had a, um, a great group, you know, in her, uh, her support group, her, her 12-step program, and she was determined to stay healthy. She was a kid. A part of her was stunted, in a way, for the time she drank. There was, there was a bit of a kind of a teenage quality about her because she went away was frozen at that point and then wakes up at age 50 that's what it felt like to me that was my take on it my kids loved her she was special she was a survivor you know she had a sad life in a lot of ways but she also had joy she got to spend a good 30 years 35 years traveling and going on cruises and making friends and the book was published in 1992 she died in 2017 and she was able to go around and, and talk about uh, her father, her own recovery it, she had a, a beautiful life in that way, but it came, It was a hard-lived life. It was a, a hard, It was a, a lot of pain there, but a lot of joy. And uh, I loved when she had the making her. She had the same kind of wry smiles. Her dad, I'd see so many uh, similarities, you know. There's in terms of you know, expressions. And Arthur was the same way as we all are with our parents. We have certain traits, and I experienced that both of them. I love them both. They were both dear friends and they treated me like a son, both of them. I have to say, I was fortunate to know them.
1: Did you ever manage to establish a relationship with Melinda Marks by any
0: chance? No, not really. And because uh, she's not around, she's up in Northern California. And uh, I never got to know her really. We've met a couple of times. Um, that's really it. I think she's a very private person. She left the Hollywood scene when she was a teenager and never came back. She's very, very private. People try to interview her and try to get stories from her, but she's not one to, at least at this point, share. The last thing, the only thing I know her to have done was when they released the Makado that she was in with her father in 1960 on NBC. She was one of the three little maids, I believe, and Groucho was Coco, the Lord I Executioner. I think she was interviewed for that piece, and she did that. I know her daughter, Jade, who is lovely, who's come to my shows, who I've gotten to have exchanges with. She's a really lovely person and kindly
1: Groucho it's going to be premiering on PBS in April where mm. can people find out more about you and what you're doing and any future tour dates
0: thank you for asking eveningwithgroucho.com not any evening but just eveningwithgroucho.com everything will be on there for the live show the film version my touring schedule but it's eveningwithgroucho.com uh, there's also a great website uh, that the company Groucho Marks Productions with which I'm part of um, set up called grouchomarks.com and that's really a, a deep dive into Groucho himself. My, my website focuses on my, my work uh, in, in that role but my other work is also in the touring schedule. So you can see me in Teatro Zanzani by looking there or Directing a play at the Wall Street Theater, you can see me there. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking.
1: Oh, of course. And we'll we'll put the links for it in the description below, definitely, so that people can directly link to your page from this uh, video. The most important question and the final question I need to ask, what is your favorite Marx Brothers film?
0: Well, for me, it's Duck Soup. Duck Soup is so fast and and furious. He's so wonderfully brutal in it. I I love that film. And yet, a night at the opera. I always tear up at the end of that film. When I've when I have seen it in a, in a big in an old revival house, a big theater of the of the era, that end is just like it's so moving. It's so over the top and lush, and it's it's a well crafted film. And uh, but for me, I like it when they're at their most anarchic. I love uh, I love horse feathers too. The first film I saw was A Day at the Races, so I have a soft spot for that one because some of the funniest scenes. I think that he's ever done or in A Day at the Races. Can't You know, all those oh, things. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. And uh, he's just great. And, the, you know, the whole, um, the whole uh, exam, the Harpo examination thing when he's like, I knew it all the time. Yeah. And he's just crazy fun. And of course, there's scenes from most of the films. Animal Crackers has great Kaufman risk and material that just like, you got to be kidding me just so brilliant.
4: before the show started i was watching uh, a night in casablanca it's just as i was working out and just the, everyone in there looking at me funny as i'm laughing as they're doing the sword fighting bit the whole it's just <laughs> it's a good film i like a night in casablanca i like it you know more than room service or at
0: or at the circus or or a couple of what's
1: there, a big store. I like a night castle blanket. Yeah, I definitely like a night of Castle more than big store, but I'll take them all over love happy any day. I'm sorry. I try to yeah. watch that. And I love Harpo. And it's not that he can't mm. carry a film, but that that just that it just didn't feel right. Like the ethos behind it was to help, you know, chick a lot of gambling debts. But I digress. To me, it's like anything, Marks Brothers, I'm such a fanboy. I'll, I'll buy it all. I don't care. You know, the, the <laughs> DVD, the Blu-ray, the, the 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 digital version, I don't care. I'm just that crazy about it. There's one thing I want to say, though, before we end, directly to you, Frank. Groucho, A Life in Review, you signed my copy of the DVD. The scene that always gets to me and, you know, really tugs on my heartstrings is at the end when you're talking when when you as groucho are talking about your love for chico and harpo my brothers were the two biggest influential guys in my life we watched the marx brothers all the time we always kind of said my brother anthony the oldest you know, he was sort of like the Grouch Show. Our middle brother, Mikey, who we unfortunately lost six years ago, he was always Chico because he was always getting into trouble. And they always called me Harpo because I was always the zany one, which they're not far off because, you know, Music is Life podcast is a podcast that I get to talk about my love for metal, hardcore movies, theater right. with friends of mine and have great guests like you on. But the way you spoke, about as as Groucho regarding Harpo and Chico it it got me right here because it reminded me how much i loved my brothers
0: Do you miss your brothers
3: Yes I do Yes i do mm-hmm. Uh, Checo would give you the shirt off his back, which was generally the one he borrowed from you the day before. (laughs) And Harpo. Harpo was a beautiful man. You never hear anyone say anything bad about Harpo. Good night, Harpo. You know you know, I never told you how proud I was that you were my brother. Hmm. Guess that's uh, one of the great regrets of my life, that I never told you how much I love you. Well, my brother, right here at Carnegie Hall, I'm going to tell you that you were a sweet and gentle man And I love you very much. Good night, Chico. We were quite a pair. I'll be seeing you guys.
1: It's the single. Greatest solo performance of any theater, uh, any production that I've ever seen, whether it was live in person or whether it was on DVD. And I've always wanted to say in person, thank you for that.
0: Appreciate that a lot. I really do. I am. I love doing that monologue at the end, and I got to do it for hundreds of times over a period of since from 1985 to 2006, on and off, uh, but really concentrated in. You know, maybe 250 shows plus another 150, you know, like 500 performances, t- you know, in the 80s. I was a young man. And uh, it was very, uh, you know, I was representing. I, had, I got to take him on. And I loved him as an old man. There's a line in there that where I'm transitioning from kind of middle-aged Groucha to old Groucha. I say, it astounds me that kids, kids that weren't even gleams in their grandparents' eyes. They're laughing at things we did over 50 years ago. It just proves one thing. There's no such thing as an old joke if you've never heard it before. And that was like, to me, I was one of those kids. You know, I, I was, you know, that was in love with him. I was one of those kids that discovered him. I'd never heard the joke before. So here I was as old Groucho in my 20s talking about kids like me. And, uh, but that farewell, I remember doing it at the Pasadena Playhouse just after the New York and London run. That's my hometown. And I did that. I remember glancing down, and there was an old man, probably in his 80s, just crying, tears just going down his eye and daubing. He's like, okay. You know, when it's underplayed, uh, it works well. It's like anything. You just got to just say it and underplay it and don't let it be in the words. Don't cry when you're just say the words because the writing's good. And thank you for that. I always, when I got to that point, to me, it was an honor to, to, to read those words, to, to play the part and to talk, you know, to speak as Groucho in regard to those brothers. It was profound as a fan. And um, thank you for saying that. You know, to me, that was a very moving part of my uh, career, being able to do that monologue over and over again. Uh, it was it was a beautiful show in New York and London. You know, the PBS special came around years later, maybe 14, 15 years later. And it's it's fine. It got cut up quite a bit. It's you know, like maybe 20 something minutes got cut out. So you're not really experiencing kind of the the show, the breathing of the show. You know, it's like the show's kind of choppier and because it was set up for a pledge break. That's what I'm so excited about. This next show, it's just just there straight through, 90 minutes. But um, You know, it's still still some wonderful opportunity it was for me to celebrate a hero, which he's a hero to you, too. So thank you for that.
1: Appreciate it. Hey, Mr. Frank Ferrante, James and I thank you for being on the podcast tonight. It was a real honor and a privilege. And, uh, you know, we wish you all the best, Uh, not just the role of Groucho, but the role of Caesar and everything else you do in the future. And we hope you would consider this as an open invitation to come back anytime to promote anything you're doing.
0: Well, I've come on just to talk to you guys.
1: So thank you for that. Appreciate it. We'll take it.
0: Hail Fredonia. Hail
1: hail Fredonia. To find out more about the Music Is Live podcast, check us out over at musicislivepodcast.com. Also, you can check out... The parent network, Rat Review, over at ratsireview.com. For James Liliquist, this is Lou Mavs. Once again, Mr. Frank Ferrante, thank you for coming on the Music is Life podcast tonight. And remember, all art is valid. Cheers.
3: I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through But I am telling you I must be
1: podcast brought to you by Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, The Timo Toki Podcast, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and The Friday Night Party with the Great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Faya. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by the Rebel Media, written by Jacqueline Guitart, Ernest Layuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislivepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at loumavs at musicislifepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislivepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsireview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers.